0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It was late November 1863, the Wednesday before the feast day recently proclaimed by President Lincoln for giving thanks for the blessings of fruitful fields and healthy skies. We were aboard the Union Steamer Express pushing down the North Landing River, headed for a farm in the neighborhood of the Princess Anne Courthouse. I figured our paddle wheels daybreak passage to be about as welcomed by the Virginians living along the shore as the oaths of loyalty that each of them had lately signed his name to. Such was the price of occupation. This is GP Gottlieb, and today I'm talking to David Wright Folliday about his gripping Civil War novel, Black Cloud Rising. He tells the story of a little-known American hero, Richard Etheridge, who was a young man newly freed from slavery toward the end of the Civil War, joined the first and only African Brigade, led by homeopathic doctor and abolitionist General Edward Augustus Wild. Richard grapples with army regulations, both brilliant and limited superior officers and family members who aren't able to accept him as an autonomous being. It takes the wise counsel of his mother and beloved, a lot of struggling and a certain amount of anguish before he stops trying to gain the approval of his father, who always viewed him as property. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me.
0: Hey, Khalid. It's so nice to be here with you.
1: So you co-wrote a first book about Richard Etheridge, about something that happened later in his life. How did you come to write the story of a previous time in this really interesting former slave Civil War veteran in his life.
0: So Richard Etheridge is this uh, 19th century figure who has this rich, rich life uh, emblematic of so much of what the what happened in the 19th century particularly as concerns uh uh race relations and americanness and yet he's this this unknown figure um which i think is not so uncommon uh for a lot of sort of histories uh that that from that era particularly of black folks because black history was so little recorded um so when i first started doing the research for fire on the beach it, it seemed like what we were my co-author david Zoe and i were researching was this this early Coast Guard story, this story of the life-saving service, this tremendous rescue that they do in 1896. And the book is very much that. But as I was learning more about Richard Etheridge, I realized that he had been a slave that had not been known. It seems almost obvious, but in the lore of the area, uh, it had sort of come down in the lore, I think, for various complex reasons, that he had been free. Um, it was, uh, it was um, said that he was biracial but it was said he was part Native American and part black. So we, as we were sort of working our way through um, um, the, the, the misunderstandings or the, 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 the falsehoods even about his, about who he had been, suddenly here was this really rich character, this really rich figure who had been a slave, fought in the Civil War, active during the Reconstruction, and then ends up being the captain of the first uh, and only all-black life-saving service station,
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, but this is previous in uh, going back a few years. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation led to the creation of the African Brigades. What did it mean for Richard Etheridge to become a non-commissioned officer?
0: So, as I imagine him, so I know, so I have to sort of, this is why Black Black Cloud Rising, the novel, is fiction, and Fire on the Beach, you know, it's not why Fire on the Beach is non-fiction, but with Fire on the Beach, because uh, slaves, black people broadly, but in particular slaves, were so little recorded in the official record, there was only so much I could do in Fire on uh, in Fire on the Beach. So, for instance, it seems pretty clear that Richard Etheridge's master was his father. Well, I can't prove it, right? Um, I was at a reading in the Outer Banks recently, and a number of Older white etherages were there. Um, And you could tell that for some, there's still even now some discomfort about that notion, even as they maybe accept it. Um, So in that era, certainly, you know, uh, it's common knowledge in a place like the Outer Banks, which is very small. The Outer Banks in that era, I mean, it's the same land space, but there are no bridges connecting it to the mainland. And the population of the entire Outer Banks is like 2,000 people, about a quarter black. There is so much intermixing that's happening, but it's just not Uh, in the white community in particular, um, accepted, uh, publicly accepted, even as it is happening. So for that, I'm saying that as a way to say all these interesting things that seemed clear about Richard Etheridge, about who he was, required fiction. So as I was imagining him and his relationship to, um, um, on the one hand, his white family back in the Outer Banks, but on the other hand, his black family and his race um, as a slave, I, I, I imagined him as very conflicted. Um, it's clear that he was raised different from other Etheridge slaves. Um, he was taught to read and write and other Etheridge slaves were not. Um, he probably had a place in the slave community before he even joined the army. But with that said, he still left and joined the army uh, to free himself and then eventually to free his people. So I imagine it this this source of uh, uh, pride to arrive, be made a, a commissioned, uh, non-commissioned officer, and as they're marching back towards where he had been enslaved, I imagine it also fraught within him. What's going to happen when he has to confront not just his former master, but his father, right? His near brother. In fact, in real life, his actual brothers and sisters.
1: Right. And he was, so his mother was a slave. Will you say something about his relationship with both of his parents?
0: Um. So Rachel Doe in the book, Rachel Doe was his mother. Uh, she was named Doe. I'm. She was a, a slave of the Doe family. But again, the Outer Banks is so small and sort of interrelated. Does were cousins of Etheridge's, and you know, a slave is a little bit everybody's slave. Um, and so Rachel Doe, he had a. R- the real life Richard Etheridge clearly had a close relationship with his mother. Um, he's buried in the Outer Banks today on the land that had been his, and his mother is buried beside him. Um, in the book, I wanted to make her the counterpoint to, uh, uh, of his ambivalence. As he has this ambivalent relationship to, towards his father, who is his master, he has no ambivalence about his r- relationship to his mother, but she resents that he has this ambivalence. Um, you know, I, I didn't want, in the novel, I didn't want to, um, it wasn't a, a matter of evasion, but I wanted to leave it a little ambiguous, sort of, you know, the, the the relationship between Rachel Doe, Richard's mother, and John B. Etheridge, his father, and not in suggesting that they might have had any sort of relationship, but the opposite, which is to say, again, in that sort of insular place, um... I imagine it as, you know, I, I don't, I think of the Sally Hemings story and I don't understand in any way that we can imagine uh, that relationship as in any way consensual. Um, while it's clear that Sally Hemings had a relationship with Thomas Jefferson, but how can it be consensual when you, when you are a slave of that person? And I, I imagine it that way with, with uh, John B. Etheridge and Rachel Doe. And Rachel Doe expresses that. Um, there is no ambiguity. There is no consent. And so she is the anger that's in Richard um, at the same time that that Richard still can't help himself but feel this draw to to his white father, who's a man of stature in the Outer Banks.
1: Um, Can you say something about the general, General Wilde's decisions and how he came to lead the African brigade of which Richard is a part?
0: Edward Augustus Wilde, all the figures in the book except for Revere, all the figures in the book were real-life people. I, I, I was really fortunate in that this rich history was just full of um, interesting figures, characters. Edward Augustus Wilde was one. So Edward Augustus Wilde was from Brookline, Massachusetts, um, born to a family that sort of, you know, landed with the early colonists, etc., in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, a sort of distinguished family, a family of doctors. He becomes a doctor in the 1850s. Um, his father was uh, considered, or maybe it was his grandfather, was the father of homeopathy. So he trains as a doctor, becomes a doctor, but he's got this streak. He's got this spirit and this streak in him, and so in the 1850s, he goes abroad, he fights um, boy well, he serves as a doctor in the army of Omar Pasha in the uh, the Crimean War. Um, he works with Garibaldi as Garibaldi is, is um, you know, um, um, sort of working to unify Italy. He's got this sort of adventurous streak. He comes, he's also an, an uh, um, a rabid. I was gonna say passionate, but it's even more. He's a rabid abolitionist, a kid to akin to a John Brown. Um, I don't know if, if if any of your audiences uh, any of your audience remembers the movie Glory. But that movie, that movie, uh, the, the Black regiment in that movie movie, Edward Wilde had been one of the people who helped raise that regiment. But he formed his own regiment of of white Massachusetts soldiers. He leads them, and at the Battle of Bull Run, he gets gravely wounded in one arm, goes home and recovers, rejoins his unit. At the Battle of South Mountain, he loses the other arm, sent back to Massachusetts, recovers. And it's in that moment that in finding a way to rejoin the fight, he, he comes upon the idea of raising these uh, uh, regiments of, free, of former slaves. Slaves are f- fleeing behind union, uh, union lines, and he comes up with the idea of raising a regiment of them. And that's how he ends up down there in Tidewater, Virginia, um, actually going into North Carolina and uh, recruiting these former slaves who fled behind lines, training them and uh, forming what would eventually become the African Brigade.
1: Huh. Uh, Richard grows up with and has a tense relationship with Patrick, John B's nephew. What's, what's going on between them?
0: I'm going to refer a little bit, uh, I'm going to move between Fire on the Beach and, uh, and, and Black Cloud Rising. Part of what interests me um, just with, with my thinking and, and, and the, the things that I like to explore in my writing is this notion of mixedness, of not just black-white relations, but black-white interrelations. Um, so Patrick Etheridge was a real-life figure. Um, he wasn't raised in Jobby's household uh, the way I depict him in the novel, but he was, it was, the, he was part of the Etheridge family. He was a cousin like I described. His father remained alive, but it was a very close, the white Etheridge's were a very close family. Um, So he'd grown up his whole life knowing Richard Etheridge. Um, In the context of Fire on the Beach, one of the things that we learned really early on, David Zobey and I, as we were doing the research, was when Richard Etheridge was appointed keeper of that station as a way to form a black station, so the first and only black Coast Guard station, five months after he after he uh, was appointed keeper captain the station was burnt to, to the ground it was by Patrick Etheridge so it's by his cousin right who he has who had he has had a relationship with his whole life which is true in real life he had served in a station with Patrick before he was made keeper so I was interested in that dynamic how is it that somebody that you're so close to uh, as I depict him in the novel a near brother. When Richard came back from the Civil War in real life, um, I discovered this uh, in my research for Fire on the Beach, he didn't live with his mother. He had gone off to fight with Fields Midget, a character in Black Cloud Rising 2. When he comes, they they leave the army together. When they get to the Outer Banks, he and Fields Midget don't, you know, live together and try to sort of, you know, make their way. He lives with Jesse Etheridge, who is the character who's a little bit of a stand-in for Patrick. So Richard clearly has this conflicted relationship. And I think that Patrick must have, too. You know, or Jesse Etheridge, the real life Jesse Etheridge. So I was curious about that. You know, they grow up as children together, um, in the book, Patrick and Sarah and and Richard. And at a certain point, they stop just being children and Richard becomes theirs. And I'm curious about that relationship and how it continues to evolve. Richard's always aware of it. You can't be the slave on the end of that relationship and not be aware of how that is, how that has um how the relationship has changed, but how did the white folks perceive it? How did the white other riches perceive it? And that's what I was trying to get at with Patrick. It's this tense relationship where there's a natural sort of sibling rivalry at the same time that, like any sibling rivalry, it's characterized by affection at the same time that it's uh, characterized by a certain antagonism. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Okay. So Richard's white family, AKA his master and relatives, sign sign loyalty. The Etheridge's sign loyalty to the Union. But Patrick signs on with the Confederate partisan Rangers. Were they also the same thing as the bushwhackers? Who were they? What were they trying to accomplish? And what happened to them in history?
0: Right. So um, that was uh, for the novel. I invented that for a novel. That's not uh, anything I know for a fact. Uh, that in fact I don't know that Patrick was involved in the war at all. But that region of North Carolina, uh, where the Outer Banks are in northeast North Carolina, um, was not the Outer Banks. Roanoke Island was occupied, but where Elizabeth City is and, and that stretch of northeast North Carolina was not Union occupied. So technically, it's still it's part of a slave state, um, but there was there were they were surrounded by the Union, right? The Union Army is in Tidewater, Virginia, to the north. The Union Army is in the Outer Banks to the south and the west. And here they are, a little bit cut off from mainland North Carolina. They're connected, but it's really far out. So there's no occupying uh, uh, Confederate Army. And then Edward Wilde marches his, you know, African brigade back into northeast North Carolina. So all those white folks down there, I feel, uh, as I understand it, feel torn. You know, whatever they might think about slavery, they also don't know, you know, they fear the natural outcome is that they're going to lose their slaves, but they don't know that for a fact. And uh, you have the Union Army that's, that's very present and no Confederate Army. And so in the breach, that's where these partisan rangers, the bushwhackers, sort of arose. Folks who were militantly uh, for secession, militantly for slavery, um, not part of the Confederate regular army in large part, because a lot of them were just still out there in Northeast North Carolina. And um, it was a little bit akin to what it it was like in Missouri, right? In Missouri, the Union Army wins Missouri fairly quickly. But until the Emancipation Proclamation, you have all these folks who own slaves. Um, And so they've got to sort of conform conform to what the Union Army uh, uh, imposes upon them at the same time that they're trying to just sort of You know, keep on to keep on keeping on. And that's the situation in Northeast North Carolina. So the partisan rangers are these Confederate guerrillas who are going to um, take on any Union Army that arrives and try to um, um, keep a foothold, keep a toehold, should the Confederate Army, you know, come out that way or whatever.
1: So uh, this is a two-pronged question. Is, is it historically accurate to say that there was a newspaper reporter um, embedded with the Confederate, uh, I'm sorry, with with the African brigade? Is it possible that that really existed?
0: So I'm, I'm going to come back to uh, what I was saying earlier. I got really, really lucky. I mean, on the one hand, I had done a lot of research for Fire on the Beach, so I, I had a sense of the story. But between Fire on the Beach, which comes out in 2001, at that point, I'd stumbled upon the story of the African Brigade, and but it was there was so little about it. Um, there was basically just this one self-published book by a man, by a man named Vitt, V-I-T-T, and it told the story. Um, so I included it as I could. It was a short 10-page chapter. By the time I come back and start writing Black Cloud Rising uh, three, four years ago, more research has been done. And not specifically on the raid, but on northeast North Carolina, on Richard's unit and whatever. And so yeah, no. The, Tewksbury, who I, I I call him Tewksbury in the novel, w- was an actual journalist from the New York Times who accompanied them. And in fact, if you Google Tewksbury uh, and the title of the article, it will come, the actual article will come up. When I quote the article, and half the time when I quote him speaking, I'm quoting from his article. There was an, so there was yeah this this journalist who was embedded, who was there, who from from my perspective seemed to have a little bit of that point of view as I as I give him in the. Uh, in the novel, that sort of uh, uh, clearly abolitionist, but clearly not spend a lot of time with black people.
1: I wish you had this in front of you so that you could read it, this sentence instead of me, because I don't have your sonorous, gorgeous sounding voice. But uh, Tewksbury writes, it is an instructive turn of the tables that the men who have been accustomed to hang runaway slaves hiding in the swamps of the South should now, hiding them themselves, be hunted by the former slaves." It's a a striking sentence.
0: Yeah, it's directly from his article, directly from a direct quote. Um, Yeah, Um, and it's a long article. He accompanied them the the entire length of that trip, and the report that he then filed and that the New York Times published is several several columns um, and super fascinating to read.
1: You mentioned the Lieber Code, which governs the conduct or it did at the time, the conduct of U.S. soldiers in war. Why were Northern troops allowed to get away with violent, racist behavior?
0: I don't know that it was allowed so much. I'm not sure that's the word I would choose. The the thing that is difficult in that moment, um, particularly for Northern soldiers, and and Colonel Draper ends up, at least as I wanted to um, portray him in the novel, even more so than Edward, uh, than Edward Wilde, uh, Alonzo Draper, the colonel in charge, just below Edward Wilde, they might have this abolitionist impulse. They're also for union. They, they are, you know, they want to keep the South from seceding. Um, Alonzo Draper was an abolitionist. By the same token, he may have never encountered a black person before he got to the, to the south. Ninety percent of all African Americans during slavery are in the South, right? that's a huge number and that 10% that's not in the South some of them are in the West I mean it's just you so the the, the, the quote-unquote Negro right the the problem of the Negro quote-unquote in the 20th or in the 19th century is in part um, it, it's so central to sort of American life but a huge portion of the American population has never encountered a black person right when they're fighting a, a, a portion of the abolitionist movement their abolitionist in that they're opposed to slavery, slavery as a moral harm, maybe therefore free labor, but they're not necessarily pro-slave, right? Which is how in some of the abolitionist movement, there were these movements, uh, there was this um, um, impulse to then send the free slaves back to Africa, because they couldn't imagine Africans, as they might call them, the the quote-unquote Negro, as fully American as capable of being fully American citizens. So it is racism exactly as you, as you labeled it, but some of it comes from just this tremendous sort of lack of exposure, um, inability to, I mean, even Americanness, as, as I'm using that word right now, you know, they they might feel the same way about Irish immigrants, right? Irish immigrants are, are incapable of being fully American. You know, the racism was, was, um, as much as anything, a sort of um, xenophobia against anything that was not uh, white, it was Anglo-Saxon Protestant descended from England. Um, and doubly so when we were talking about Africans, because, the, you know, the sort of uh, stigma of slavery. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah. So what you're saying, racism comes from ignorance, all racism.
0: Yeah, it comes from, and it's practiced in that way. Even when you um, are "quote unquote" benevolent, the Draper again is the character that I really wanted to try to get at that with. You know, he has the best impulses. Um, and the quote when he talks about cuffing a dog's nose, I read that. I read that he had written that in a letter uh, when he was. I think it was in a letter when he was writing back home. So as I was doing this new research for the novel, um, more like I mentioned, more books had come out. I came across some great information, letters and things like that, uh, that uh, Alonzo Draper had written. And um, in one of them, he did, a family member or something had asked him of what it was like commanding, you know, the, the word they were using was colored, I think, colored troops, as opposed to, you know, because he had been a commander of white troops. And he was, he was exactly like that. He's like, you know, it's like training a dog, you have to cuff him on the nose. And it's clear that we see an evolution of that in Draper over the course of his time with black troops. but initially he thinks of them as lesser too, even though he is a, a rabid abolitionist before the war, he had been very, he has been a, a, a labor activist. He had, it was a lawyer who he had read of the law and he had uh, uh, organized um, poor shoemakers. So he's got this impulse to sort of help the underdog to work for the underdog, but he can't quite fully see him, right? He can't quite fully see the black person immediately, right? He learns how to do that over the course of this time that he spends interacting with and actually getting close to then these black men.
1: I was really, I loved Colonel Draper. He was a good guy in the end. Um, He responds after uh, some of the troops, some from the African brigade are killed and uh, the, the men want to bury those troops in a white church because, uh, but, Colonel Draper responds that it isn't wise because then the corpses might be desecrated afterwards, after they leave. And what he says, a a brilliant quote, he says, "'Let us bury them on the field where they fell as heroes. And when the name Indian Town is one day on the lips of every school child studying this great revolutionary action undertaken by the African brigade, so too will ring out the names of those men.'" So my question, Who exactly was Colonel Draper? And why didn't we learn about it in school? Why isn't it on the name, on the tongue of every school child?
0: You know, that is such a great question. And I wish the answer was as straightforward as it just, that history had not been uh, sort of uncovered or dug up yet. But it's not, it's just not that straightforward. Uh, The, there is just, I mean, we can think about the, the politics of what's happening today, uh, issues around race and citizenship, because that's what we're talking about on some level. Who gets to be fully a citizen? Who deserves to be fully a citizen? That's the question at the heart there too. You know, men like Alonzo Draper was willing to risk his life um, to lead a regiment of black men, knowing full well that this is what they were working for was not just emancipation. But eventually, citizenship, full citizenship, citizenship, equality. Um, and again, Alonzo Draper had that in his, in his being. He'd organize the, the, the shoemakers and things like that. Um, but he was young, too. That's one of the things that, that is so clear. If you see a picture of Alonzo Draper, if you Google him, there are a few pictures that come up. He's fully bearded. You know, all these young men are wearing beards and things like that. But when he is commanding the African Brigade, he's like 25 years old. He's, you know, he's a young man. Uh, when he dies, I think he's 28. Um, and he's risen to the rank of general and he dies out in Texas. Um, so that was not a spoiler. He does not die in the novel. But eventually he died in, uh, at, at the end of the war when the, the unit was stationed out in Texas. Um, and he was just 28 years old. So they're young men and they have this passion. Um, and the best of them, again, are, are the American story. Richard Etheridge is the American story. He's a slave. He frees himself. Uh, He fights for his people's freedom. He comes back during the reconstruction. When he joins a lifesaving service before he's made a a keeper, so back to fire on the beach, he's the lowest ranking man in his crew. You know, he's just lucky to be able to get on. He's the lowest ranking man, but it's known up and down the coast that he's one of the best lifesavers. So when they need a they when they need a competent keeper and they can't find one, they take a risk and he's an easy risk to take. And then he ends up, you know, being the leader of this only Coast Guard crew and they perform this heroic rescue. These men are heroes, but it's tough history. Um so in the outer also, I mean, again, with the critical race theory, you know, the, all the hullabaloo that's going on right now, um, it's a hard it, they should be in our school books. And I don't know why we can't sort of just acknowledge them as heroes for what they did. Um, with that said, and I'm rambling a little bit, so I'm going to stop, but I want to say this last thing, which is to say local school boards sort of choose their curricula. And the work that Zoe and I did with Fire on the Beach and, and sort of the interest that sort of has generated since, in the Outer Banks, I know that they teach the PI and Lifesavers. So... Yeah, they they may make mention of Richard Etheridge's role in the Civil War, but I was out there for a reading for Black Lab Rising, and in the schools, in the public schools, they teach a section that says this, these men were out here, the piano Lifesavers, they performed this rescue. It's natural. It's it's a no brainer that they should because those men were from that region. I would argue the whole state of North Carolina, um, but again, it's hit and miss. It's hit and miss. North Carolina's a conservative state. Blah blah blah. So,
1: yep. Okay, so there's more work to be done. Yes, indeed. Uh, So tell tell everybody, what are you working on next?
0: So I've been uh, at the New York Public Library for this past year, working on a novel that I've been working on for a while. Um, But here I feel like I I sort of turned the corner. Um, It's based loosely on my my own parentage. My mom was a a French Jew uh, who was born in 31. So she survived the war. And after the war, she was uh, revoltée, as the French say. You know, she was just sort of, Re- rebellious and pushing against, you know, the French people who had, you know, oppressed them. She had some ambivalence about her own Jewishness, and so she embraces the anti-colonial movement. Falls in love with an African man who's from the uh, from Dahomey. Dahomey was formerly the slave coast, and he's actually the son the son of the last king of uh, the grandson of the last king of Dahomey. So these slave traders uh, historically, this sort of slave trading family, uh, they have a falling out as all young people do, do and she. I'm talking about my mom now, uh, the character also, I suppose, um, marries a black GI a little bit impulsively. That love triangle is a story I'm telling in a novel that's called What is Hidden Cannot Be Loved. Um, and I'm also working on a nonfiction piece that's actually a shorter piece that's coming out in The New Yorker, uh, I think at the end of June, uh, that tells that story uh, from an, as an essay from a nonfiction place.
1: Wow, it's just it sounds intriguing. I'm already thinking I want to see the movie
0: when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> <So> do I. <laughs>
1: David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. It's really been great to talk to you. I really appreciate the interest you've taken in my book and in my work.
1: And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking to author David Wright Folliday about his gripping novel, Black Cloud Rising. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.